0: That'd be great. Um, It's a new series. It's um, going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how we handle this. Um, I've got a big target on me. I'm a big guy. And it's going to be hard to miss, especially when you're talking on topics such as these. Um, Christianity has had a real problem with sex. Sexuality. It has had a huge problem with it. We have grappled with how to deal with it. Uh, For most people, sexual sin is far worse than most sins in general. A person could rip you off of your uh, pension fund or could do all sorts of evil things, but the moment they do some sort of sexual immorality, then we jump on them. It's a fascinating thing on how we have handled this topic over the centuries. I remember when I first became a, a a pastor, I was a youth pastor in a church, and inevitably, sooner or later, in every church I was pastoring in as a youth pastor, there was always the topic of sex. How far do I go? What's permissible, what's not? And I remember back in the day, there wasn't actually much out there, but what was out there was this huge idea of what we used to call the purity culture, If you remember in the 90s and the 2000s, this reaction to the world's question or the world's response to sex was, we came out with a purity culture. And that did a lot of damage. A lot of damage that many of us are struggling or suffering from today. For example, this book, Before You Meet Prince Charming. It's an interesting book. It was a great book. A lot of kids, a lot of young people, a lot of adults were trying to get their kids into it and it has this comment, it goes, a woman's heart is like a chocolate cake. If someone eats a piece before the party, they heard chocolate, they were awful. (laughs) If someone eats a piece before the party, then the cake is no longer whole. How devastating do you think that can be on a person? When they've made a mistake, an error of judgment, now they are no longer whole. But it didn't stop with a book like this. Um, uh, Stephen Arderburn makes this comment in um, Every Young Woman's Battle. Every time a man has sex with a woman, he takes a piece of her soul. It's interesting he makes that comment about man taking a woman's piece, but not a woman taking a man's piece. How is that possible? Can you see how much we're kind of reacting to this issue of sex? Going on, another book, um, Shanti Felham. She makes this comment in For Young Women Only Teenage Guys are conflicted by their powerful physical urges. Many guys don't feel the ability or the responsibility to stop the sexual progression. So, her result, the what we need to do, how do we deal with this, is this You ladies, guys need to help, your help to protect both of you. you know, it's interesting. It kept going. One book that drove me completely crazy as a youth pastor was this one, i Kiss Dating Goodbye. Joshua Harris. It's, quite, it's popular today because of Joshua Harris's stance. His marriage has ended in divorce. He's recanted everything he's written in this book. But it's a multi-million dollar seller. And one of the comments he makes is, the more you date, the more you give yourself away, the less you'll have to give to your spouse. He actually goes into terms of percentages. That's how specific he gets. So if you've dated a lot of the times, that means you could only be able to give maybe 50% to your spouse. And we wonder today why cultures like Me Too, Christian marriages falling apart um, on the same kind of level as most non-Christian marriages. It's because we've really done a poor job of addressing sexuality. Fear is usually the way we go. We've created a culture of fear around sex. We've built it up to be this massive thing. We've put boundaries in place to stop people and really just kind of spotlighted those who have done so much damage because they've had sexual sin in their lives. So what happens when society explodes sexually, we freak out and we react. With the advent, especially today, of the struggles that people are having with their sexuality, Christianity is not really a place they like to go to. It's not a safe haven for them to have a discussion, talk about their issues, talk about who they are, what they're dealing with. Because for the most part, Christianity has reacted like some of us have reacted to the vaccination. Right? Some of us have reacted to Obama being president or barcodes or bank cards. or let's even go further back to those of you who can remember Henry Kissinger. We react in very negative, reactive ways rather than allow a space and a place for people to wrestle, be challenged, grow, learn. There has been quite a lot of advancement. This book is a wonderful book by Preston Sprinkle. Actually, he's written a couple of other books. Great pastoral heart, very, very well-written book called People to Be Loved. Um, But he struggles from (laughs) his generation of, you know, okay... We acknowledge that sexuality might be actually very much a biological thing. We acknowledge that people are struggling with how to express this sexuality. But at the end of the day, we have rules to follow and we have to follow them. Because that's what his end premise is. In fact, the way he addresses it is, is even though it's okay, for example, to have same-sex attraction, which he and many theologians today are saying is not a sin, the acting out of it Is and he uses this as an example as to why we can't do it today he uses the sex laws in Leviticus 18-20 to to say that they're still authoritative for us but what's the problem with that (laughs) well one said New Testament but then again you can also pick and choose what you want from the laws can't you you know what else is written in those laws that if a woman is raped she must marry the person who raped her Are we going to follow that? That's what happens to us when we start to get fixated on trying to follow these rules and laws because we've got to keep things in order. We have this word, this this terminology that drives me nuts, the slippery slope. You've heard it before, right? If we allow this, then what's next? great book. I will recommend two books to you to read in this uh, sermon today. There'll be a lot more during the whole series because we're not just tucking, touching on sexuality. Next week it's politics. But this is a great book, Sex Difference in Christian Theology by Megan DeFranza. She writes this great theological book. It's a bit difficult to read at times. But she makes this wonderful comment. She says, the church does not need a new or better set of rules on sexuality. We need spiritual formation we can break, we can, when we break through the tough grey areas of scripture into extra biblical rules whether conservative or progressive we remove the opportunity for Christians to discuss, think deeply and wrestle with God's word and be conformed into the image of Christ it's a powerful statement and it's one that makes a lot of sense in this murky world of sexuality And one of the problems we have as a church, I'm not just saying us, I'm saying the church, is that we don't allow the conversations. We fall to the rules. It's easier that way. In addressing the impact, the negativity of the purity culture, um, this book by um, Rachel Joy Welcher, in in talking back to purity culture, she makes this comment, she says, when I taught high school English, students often asked, what will be on the test? And they asked it so often that I stopped giving them the tests and began only assigning essays and projects. This forced deeper thought and nuance and, of course, more work. But it wasn't just the students who preferred clearer, more direct answers. As a teacher, I would have found it easier to open up a novel and tell them what to think instead of asking them to figure it out themselves as we read the text together. It took more time, more discussion, more frustration to teach literature with nuance and thought, but it was worth it. For us Christians, it's easy to point to the Ten Commandments and say, this is it, rather than actually journey with people, walking alongside of them, because that can be a really frustrating experience. That can be a very trying experience. That can be a very difficult experience. When it's that close to us, it doesn't become black and white anymore. I've told you the story when I first came to New Zealand. The the guy who hired, who was in the, um, the search team, the main guy, Alan, he was convinced that if you divorced and remarried, you're going to hell because you're committing adultery absolutely convinced until his son divorced and remarried and his grandson divorced and remarried his grandson now is the pastor at uh, Wellington South Island Bay Baptist faced with it personally and having to journey with people changes the playing field completely I'm going to basically break this sermon up into two parts. The first part are the challenges that we face socially and biologically, and then the second part, the challenges we face theologically. Now, this is, believe me, when I've I've addressed the teams about how I'm going to be preaching this Sunday, and I told them I need time, this is not an easy subject, and it's flippant to think that I can fix this in 30 minutes or 20 minutes. This needs a lot of prayer, discussion and the challenge of being able to talk it out together but I'll try and break it down into these two subjects socially and biologically the first part that we're going to face socially and biologically as Christians and the challenges we face around it is these two words gender dysphoria and paraphilia we aren't medics we aren't medical professionals we're not mental health experts and nor do I presume to be that But there is a big difference between paraphilia and gender dysphoria. One is a neurotic disorder, the other one isn't. Paraphiliacs are driven by sexual arousal. Anything from uh, inanimate objects, dead bodies, children, foot fetishes. These are called paraphilias. There's a problem with your sexual drive. Now, we Christians, for a long time, have always thought those of the same sex attraction are driven by their sexual needs. But that's not actually the case. Gender dysphoria is one of those problems that we face with. The extreme side of gender dysphoria is an absolute complete um, dislike of one's body, that they can't touch certain parts of their body because they feel trapped in something that's not theirs but the lighter cases are just understanding what it means to be male, female. One of the biggest issues we face is this thing called intersex, the I in LGBTQI. Intersex is an interesting, very fascinating uh, problem, or, or not a problem, maybe not, that we face. Two in America, two out of 100 kids born in the US have some issue with intersex. It's a physical problem. The extreme sides of intersex are children who are born with both sexual organs, and the parents need to make a decision at the time of birth of where to go. But something like 70% of them don't exhibit any issues. They'll be born looking like a male and a female or a female, completely everything looking right until puberty hits. And then the hormones released in puberty are not male for a male, they're female. And that's where we get a lot of issues. These are actual biological issues that we as Christians need to take into consideration. Talking with one uh, gentleman, gay gay Christian in our community, not here at our church, but in another church. I had a great conversation with him, just asking him questions. And he said, Christians think I'm just after sex. I'm not. I just want companionship. I want to wake up next to somebody. You know, the feeling that there's somebody in your life that you can share. That's all. It's romance. It's not sex. And when you get to a certain age, you're not driven by it. You're driven by the need to share and be in companionship with someone. How do I tell him God doesn't want that for you? (laughs) I'm a pastor at heart. It's a difficult one, especially if they're suffering or their genetic makeup, their biological makeup is that. Now there are other things I think we all struggle with, and that's social inclusion. And this topic is bigger and deserves a sermon all on its own, and where we have failed with the church is really right there. Social inclusion has caused all sorts of problems It has muddied the waters for everybody because deep down we as humans are driven to be liked. Very few people don't want to be liked. We all want acceptance. We all want inclusion. We all want to be part of something big. Interesting book written by uh, Abigail Schreier. Um, Not sure I'd recommend it, but it is is a good book to read a different perspective. Uh, She's challenging the transgender craze, and she makes some very valid points along the lines of damage that is caused by it. We acknowledge that there might be a biological issue but there's also an inclusion issue. She makes this comment, between 2016 and 2017, the number of gender surgeries in the US quadrupled and females represented 70% of all such surgeries. Remember what I was talking about before with the purity culture, who were the main targets? The guys only had really one big movement. It's called Promise Keepers. And they told you to be a real man. But the women had a lot of these books hit them with the purity culture, the purity rings, and then that culminated in our nice little What Would Jesus Do? And now we're seeing a lot of them. She goes on to say this. Teenage transgenderism is largely a popular craze that can be to the long-lasting detriment of those girls and young women that it consumes. Many adults and institutions are complicit in this popular movement which has far-reaching societal developments and consequences as well as harmful personal outcomes. Bella and I were having a real interesting discussion around autism and how there is a class action suit in in Canada at the moment where a number of autistic Adults are suing institutions to encourage them to change their sex when all they were was basically fixated and wanted inclusion. And, And Bella made a very interesting comment. She said, actually, if you think about it, compared to most humans, autistic kids have very different neurotypes. And it's far more complicated than just trying to set genders to them. It it actually requires a whole different way of thinking. I found that fascinating. What are we missing out? But still there is this issue, the damage it does cause when we allow inclusion to be the sole reason. New Zealand I think is far more difficult than most societies around the world. We don't treat 13-year-olds as adults in most parts of the world, but in our country, we do. Uh, There's a a real positive effect to that and there's a real negative effect to that. But it's a challenge for us. How do we manage this? The issues that we face are not black and white. They require uh, a lot of discussion they require dealing with something that we have not dealt with as a belief, faith movement these are issues that are starting to stem funnily enough for those of you who are against the vaccine some of the reasons why they think there are the higher cases nowadays is because of early childhood vaccine they say that for autism as well why we, we're seeing such high numbers today I'm not saying either way but, but it is something that we are faced with that we're not doing a real good job addressing okay Rob you're not a well regardless of what degree you got 20 years ago you're not a, a, a medical professional today you are a theologian let's talk about this from a theological point of view And theology for me actually is just as complicated because for a lot of us, we think the Bible is quite black and white when it comes to when it says, say in Romans or 1 Corinthians or in Timothy, that homosexuality is wrong and and all of that. But here's, here's what you need to understand. If we believe the Bible is the same then as it is now, then we must say the same message then is the same message today, right? With me? If not, we can just change it every generation, right? The Bible means different things to different people. One thing that we believe in is the word's eternal. It's there the whole time. The message is the same. The context of which we are in is a little different, so we need to apply it to where we are today, but it can't change. Homosexuality in the ancient world did not exist the way it exists here today. There was no such thing as man marrying man or woman marrying woman, it was not part of the culture. In fact, many of the translations of homosexuality, if you look at it in the Greek, refers to a term called the soft ones. The young ones. Referring to men having sex with younger people. What we would call pedestry today. But even more so, slaves, their job was to satisfy their owners, and in some times, sexually sexually. Romans had a knack of making eunuchs. The Greeks had knacks of falling in love with young men. They'd be married on the side, but release their sexual tension on young boys. This was the world that Paul lived in. There was no idea that there would ever be this issue of a man wanting to marry a man. So it's hard for us to go to the Bible and say, here's a verse that says this, it applies like this today. Well, it didn't apply like that back then because the the actual circumstance never existed. So what does that mean for us today? How do we apply God's word to today? The problems of rearranging scripture and making it different, we get theologies like rapture that for 1800 years never existed in the English language or in the in the biblical language and all of a sudden a guy in the middle of Wales who formed the Plymouth Brethren comes up with this whole idea of dispensationalism out of the Bible it finds out that there's a bit of difficulty in doing that so we'll rewrite the Bible and call it the Schofield Bible and by the way here's the rapture all of us who are elect Calvinistic predetermined we will be gone and the rest can suffer that's what happens when you take the Bible out of context We'll make it up as we go. So we've got to be really careful in how we address this issue by not just blatantly saying it says this in the Bible, but what did it mean to them? The terminologies were different. The ideology was different. But there is one thing that hasn't changed in the Bible. One thing that remains strong today that you cannot take out of context, and that is putting Christ first. put in Christ first and I think here is where we struggle and I'm not just saying around sexuality even more so I think with sexuality but in everything great verse Uh, this comment this is the second book I want to recommend if you want four views on two sides of the topic which is absolutely fascinating it's a great read again quite theological but really fascinating Uh, Stephen Holmes says this the acceptance offered to lesbian and gay people is exactly the same as acceptance offered to straight people we are all invited through the mercy of God and the sacrifice of Christ to come as we are my highlight desiring wrongly in multiple ways and to find ourselves gradually transformed to desire rightly through the work of the spirit in all aspects of our life We all approach Christ with the wrong desires, regardless of how we want to make that up. Regardless of whether it's a paraphilia, regardless of whether it's something innocuous, we all approach as we are. And then we are transformed by Christ making him first in our lives. Galatians 5.13-15 You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. A lot of people use this to talk about our sexual promiscuity or, or our overzealousness in sex. It's got nothing to do with sex. Just because the word flesh is in there doesn't mean it's about carnal desires. He's saying, if you go on, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. It's the same issue we've got with the vaccine today. Christians are destroying each other because we're biting and devouring ourselves over each other. The sexuality issue is doing the exact same thing. We are biting and devouring each other and we're going to divide and destroy each other unless we come together and allow Christ to be the center of everything we do. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And this is not just about sexuality. It's about who we are. Philippians 2.21, if you've got the message version, oh, God bless you, Eugene Peterson, for most people around here are looking out for themselves with little concern for the things of Jesus and that's the challenge I think we all face I find it really difficult when Christians take this real hard line towards those who are struggling with their sexuality because I think you're not really loving here you're you've got a construct in your mind and you're sticking to it it's breaking your world up rather than actually stepping back and saying what is God doing here how is the spirit moving here? How can I work through this together? How can we make this? How how does this work? You're actually concerned about yourselves rather than the things of Jesus. But that goes for the same for sexuality. I'm sorry, people. I might come across as like even this word "il capo" means Italian, and it means in Italian it means the boss, right? I've got you know I've got the Italian flag. I love Liverpool as a football team. My identity has always been in that. Growing up in Australia in a white very white 70s and 80s Australia, I was known as a wog. I was proud of being a wog. And when I went back to Italy, I was proud to be back in the fatherland, but I am not Italian. I'm not Italian. When the Promise Keepers started up, I was one of those people on the mall in front of the capital of the US in Washington, D.C., one of a million guys doing our Million Men March back in 1998. But I can tell you right now, I'm not a man. I'm not male. I'll tell you what I am I'm a child of God. Christ is my all. I don't wave a flag, and that's my identity. I I see us. We're quick. It's easy to say to the world I'm Italian, harder to say I'm Christ. Easy to tell the world where I stand politically, but harder to tell the world that I am Christ. I'm not defined by my morals. I'm not defined by my traditions. I'm not defined by my sexuality. I am defined by Jesus. And everything everything we do must be must be under that under him it's a hefty challenge and if you are under him you'll have a lot more compassion for those who are struggling with their sexuality if you are under him you'd have a lot more understanding of what it might take to hold that person and walk alongside them. And for some of you who are rampant, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm going to talk about rights. Maybe you be talking about rights and in that we'll talk about the rights of the, inju- of the unjust or the injustice, sorry. There is an element where we need to stand up for those who have been treated poorly without putting the but at the end of it yes they'll treat the worldly but how does that work for you in your argument with your spouse works well right we know immediately there is no apology there sometimes we just need to shut up and accept that we've done it wrong humbleness another one of those Jesus defining things like I said, I cannot and will not answer questions. It's more of a journey. And I'm hoping this might be step one for us as a church. You know, here's a big challenge. Jesus was challenged by by you know the the, <laughs> the rabbis came to him and said, Hey, you are if so and so dies and you marries this person and then that guy dies and she marries another, who's gonna be her husband in heaven? What did Jesus say? There'd be no marriage in heaven, right? So, what was God's original intent? You know, people say, oh, God's original intent was for man to marry woman. No, actually, not at all. That was not God's original intent, that was part of the fall. God's original intent is that we all live together in his garden. It's a challenge. Is that to say that we don't affirm it? Absolutely. I believe without a doubt that God's original intention with the fall was that man would a marry woman. It makes absolute sense to me. I know that's a tough thing for a lot of us to follow, swallow who don't believe that. But that is the original intent. And we as Baptists affirm that. We've affirmed it at a meeting in 2015. But because we affirm that doesn't mean that we don't allow for allowances. And that's just something that we're still grappling with. Let us pray. Father God. Not sure I'm thanking you for putting this on my heart to preach, but the challenge for us as a community is how do we grapple with these things, Lord? Because at the end of the day, we are yours, we are your children. We are struggling with this. We're struggling with this as a community of believers. And so we want to lift it to you, Lord. Help us, uh, for those of us who struggle with, with what this might mean. For ourselves, for those of us who are struggling with what that might mean for others. Help us, Lord, to be uh, your ambassadors. Jesus, we, we carry you, not, not any other identity. We are yours. We lay down our lives to follow you. Help us, God, as we grapple and wrestle with this Holy Spirit, guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm going to take a breather because then I've got another service to do. But if you guys want to uh, just kind of... Yes. What? Oh, yeah, today we're doing it this way. You go out the back this way, you don't have to go out that way. Oh, and there's tea and coffee downstairs too. And the oh in the cafe. So you've got to go in the cafe if you want tea and coffee, and if you want to hang out and talk a bit more. But remember, in the hallways, keep your masks on. If you're going in the cafe to sit down, you can take your masks off and have a coffee in there. God bless you. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to apologize right now. If anything I say in this sermon that just doesn't sit right with you, come and talk to me about it. Um, I made some comments in the last one, that um, a one in particular that might have come across differently than what it should have. Um, so please, don't hesitate to come. I don't have notes in front of me, so I talk. Like a good Italian, I go. Uh, and sometimes I uh, have to be held accountable for what I say. So please. Don't hesitate, especially on the topic that we're dealing with this morning. But before I go to that, happy birthday, Kathy. Kathy Shepherd's birthday. Just thought I'd announce that. (laughs) Um, This is an interesting topic. I'm going to be doing this sermon series. I'm going to be doing four sermons. Uh, Today, we're talking about sex and sexuality. Next week, we're talking about um, politics. Uh, The week after that, rights. And then the week after that, Jesus. Because in all of this, uh, he is what we hear about, right? Yeah. That will be a big theme in all these series, just a heads up, warning, uh, a little hint to what this is all going to be about. It's all about Jesus. But this morning, we're going to be talking about sex. And Christianity and sex and sexuality in particular uh, don't have a happy history. They haven't worked well together. Christians in particular have created a culture around sex that is very unhelpful, very harmful in many ways, and we've not really addressed it. It's like the beast that we all want to slay. You could be guilty of a whole lot of sin in your life and be quite easily forgiven by the majority of Christians, but when there is sexual sin, all of a sudden we turn it into something bigger than what it is. Right? It's this thing that we have. Uh, Part of it's a reaction to culture and society around us, But in part, it's because, well, we've never been really good at dealing with it. We haven't. When I first became a youth pastor, we were in the throes of what was known as the purity movement. Everyone remember those days when, you know, there was this pure, I don't know if they did this here in New Zealand, but in Australia they did, and definitely in the States, where, you know, they just encouraged people to be pure. You could buy, girls could buy purity rings. It all culminated with the the little what would Jesus do, um, hand, uh, arm, wrist things. But it was just this culture, and a lot of books came out at that time. And as a youth pastor, I struggled with it because parents wanted me to teach on these things to their kids. But I found it very unhelpful back then. And unfortunately, I think I was proven right. give you an example. Book by um, uh, Sarah Maley called Before You Meet Prince Charming. She made this comment in it. She goes, a woman's heart is like chocolate cake. In the earlier service, there was a little kid up the front, and as soon as they heard chocolate cake, they went, yay! <laughs> so this was just like, okay, well, <laughs> we've got kids in here. Um, what are you, you're always going to basically see what you want to see, but a woman's heart is like chocolate cake. If someone eats a piece before the party, then the cake is no longer whole. Now, I don't know about you, but looking back on that, it, it's actually quite damaging, isn't it? It really is damaging. Uh, another book, every, Woman's, yeah, every Young Woman's Battle, there's actually a, another book for men, Every Young Man's Battle. But in this, it's the same author, Stephen Arterburn, uh, and he makes this comment. He says, every time a man has sex with a woman, he takes a piece of her soul. It's interesting, because in the man version of the book, that doesn't say that. So only only the man can take a piece of her soul, but the woman can't take a piece of his soul. Fascinating that. Uh, Another book written by um, Shanti Fendham, For Young Women Only. She makes this comment. She says, teenage guys are conflicted by their powerful physical urges. Many guys don't feel the ability or responsibility to stop the sexual progression. Guess what her... Um, how do we resolve this? How do we deal with this? This is what she says. Guys need your help to protect both of you. Imagine putting that pressure on a teenage girl. I mean, do you you see a a, a line that was happening with this purity culture movement in the 90s and early 2000s? It culminated with a multi-million dollar book that many of you now know today because of what's going on with the author, uh, the book is called, I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Joshua Harris has come out and um, has asked his publishers to stop publishing the book. Uh, his marriage has broken up. They've gone and have divorced. they've divorced over, and he thinks it's just rubbish what he wrote. The problem is he sold millions and millions of copies of it. And along the same lines, he says this, the more you date, the more you give yourself away, the less you have to give to your spouse. So much for a redeeming God. It's fascinating. He goes on actually to put in um, percentages. Like, if you date a lot, then you could give up to 50% less to your partner. Oh my goodness. This stuff has not helped because the generation that grew from that has the highest divorce rate from amongst Christians in most probably all the generations that have come before it. Because most people are coming into this broken. Self-esteem's out the window. I've made a mistake. I'm never going to be redeemed. And the focus predominantly seems to be on women. It's your responsibility. We wonder how or why the Me Too movement has come out. We wonder how Someone like Ravi Zacharias can do what he did. We've created a culture of fear around sex. Christianity has done this over the last few decades. We've created this culture of fear around sex. So what happens when society explodes sexually? We freak out. And we go in the opposite direction. And it's challenging for us, isn't it? And today we are faced with this issue of sexuality, uh, the blurring of lines around gender, and we are questioning, how do we handle this? And a lot of us have taken a staunch stand to say, this is wrong, while many of us actually have said, "How, how do we grapple with this? How do we confront this? A great book by Preston Sprinkle, um, the guy, there's a brilliant book. He's come out with a, a, a more recent book called Embodiment. Um, very pastoral, uh, uh, you know. He's a theologian, so it's, it's great to see the, the you know the pastoral side of him in this. People to be loved, and he's talking about homosexuality, uh, same sex attraction, um, and the challenges that they have around that. And he, in a pastoral way, is doing what most theologians today are doing, and that is accepting that there is a biological, a genetic issue that we have to face, that we can't ignore. We can't keep saying it's nurture, nurture, nurture. Some of it is nature. But like most good, strong, conservative Christians, he's Scottish, he can't get past this comment. He makes this comment in the book all the sex laws he goes on to uh, address the sex laws in Leviticus you know 18 through 20 and he says well you know because even if you've got this as a part of your makeup he says the sex laws are still authoritative to Christians today so he says while this might be biologically a part of you it doesn't mean you can act it out and the reason why well because in the Old Testament it says this now what's the problem with that Yeah. It, it actually shows our prejudice again doesn't it like when it comes to sex the whole law can be abandoned except for the sex laws because that's the most important thing because we christians can't let go we're like a dog with a bone it's just that's it the problem with those laws let me tell you one of them says if a woman is raped by a man she shall have to marry that man Is that authoritative for us Christians today? Why don't you guys tell me? I'd be very surprised if anyone said yes. So what are we doing? Picking and choosing what we want out of the Bible? Just because we're not comfortable with what we're faced with? It is challenging, isn't it? (laughs) Um... It's not an easy subject to preach on. And it's even harder when you've only got a limited time. Which is why I put that little tagline at the beginning of an apology. If you misunderstand what I say, please come and clarify it with me. But this is not an easy topic for us to deal with. It requires grappling. Not rules and regulations. There are going to be two books I'm going to recommend for you to read. One of them is this book. The sex, sex Difference in Christian Theology." Uh, Megan de France has done this great book. It's very theological. It's hard to, to read, if you're not a theologian sometimes. She goes deep into words and all sorts of things. But her comment is absolutely brilliant. She says this: "The church does not need a new and better set of rules on sexuality. We need spiritual formation. When we break down the tough, gray areas of Scripture into extra-biblical rules, whether conservative or progressive, we remove the opportunity for Christians to discuss, think deeply, wrestle with God's Word, and be conformed into the image of Christ. For too long, we put walls up and rules to follow, and then we wonder why people do not come to us anymore. most people who are struggling with their sexuality, the last place they want to go is church. Because there is no understanding, there's no discussion, there's no interaction, there's no wrestling. It's a rule. Um, In addressing the purity culture, Christian culture, um, uh, Rachel Joy Welcher in talking or taking back, uh, talking back to purity culture, she makes this comment in in regards to how we should really, really be challenging people to be addressing this and talking this out. She goes, when I taught high school English, students often asked what will be on the test and they asked it so often that I stopped giving them tests and began only giving assigning essays and projects. This forced deeper thought and nuance and of course more work. But it wasn't just the students who preferred clearer, more direct answers. As a teacher, I would have have found it easy to open up a novel and tell them what to think instead of asking them to figure it out for themselves as we read the text together. It took more time, more discussion, more frustration to teach literature with nuance and thought. But it was worth it. It's a fascinating way. It's easy for us to just tell people it's right and wrong. It's black and white. This is it. That is until it happens to you or someone close to you that you love, and then everything changes. Uh, When I was hired at uh, a Power Baptist Church eleven years ago, one of the guys on the call committee was was a guy named Alan, and he really, really struggled uh, through a lot of things. He and I we had many theological discussions in that first year, and one of them was he was hellbent. He was absolutely convinced that anyone who divorced and then remarried was committing adultery and they're going to hell. Convinced. That is until his son divorced and remarried. And then his grandson divorced and remarried. His grandson now is a pastor at Wellington South Baptist Church, Old Island Bay Baps. When confronted with something deeply personal, close to home, it doesn't become black and white anymore. We have to wrestle with it. We have to walk alongside people. We have to Learn, understand, teach sometimes. But it's easier for us just to set the rules. I'm going to be tackling this sermon on two fronts. Um, the first front will be the challenges we face socially and biologically. The second front is challenges we face theologically. So just to give you an idea of my own background, for those of you who don't know, I do have a, a, my first degree um, was in medical science uh, which didn't really eventuate beyond the degree because I went straight into Bible college after that my daughter is a biochemist she followed kind of in my footsteps as far smarter than me on those regards I always had problems with letters and words loved chemistry it just I don't know why it just makes sense to me it's the way I am but at the heart of everything regardless of what I might have I am not an expert on that first point. I'm going to share with you what I've read, what I've, what I've caught up on, but I'm not an expert on it. I am an expert on the second, second part. That, yes, I am well-trained theologically. So let's try to go through this, and remember, a lot of information in a very short space of time. The challenges we face socially and biologically. The first thing is this, gender dysphoria and paraphilia now you've ever heard a lot of Christians use this term yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine and he made the same comment to me he goes Rob the slippery slope man the slippery slope you know what he mean and I'm like yeah I get it I get it it's this idea that if we let this happen it's going to slide and then this over here is going to happen right and in some aspects society works that way if our speed limit is 55 and we jump it up to 70 how fast are we going to go 72. Right? So yeah, it is a slippery slope in a sense. We just always push the limits. But you've got to understand that there's actually a world of difference here. Gender dysphoria and paraphilia are two very different things. One is a neurotic disorder. The other isn't. Paraphilia is a very unhealthy sexual drive. Paraphiliacs, attracted to inanimate objects, to dead bodies, to children. Foot fetishes. Dominatrixes. They're called paraphilias. They're a neurotic disorder. They are what arouse us sexually. There's actually one called autogenophilia. And that is the sexual arousal a man gets from dressing as a woman. These are all neurotic disorders. Gender dysmorphia is not. And that's the difference. There is actually a biological issue going on with gender dysphoria. So pedophilia, pedophiles are not interested in romanticizing children. They're not interested in taking them out to dinner, sharing their lives with them. They're driven by their sexual urge. That's why it's wrong. That's why it's a neurotic disorder. For us as Christians, unfortunately, we are driven to think that homosexuality or same-sex attraction equates to sex when it's not. Because, like I said, we Christians have an unhealthy view of sex. We've been almost educated over the centuries to, to have a very negative view towards sex. One of the biggest gender dysphoria dysphoria, uh, aspect is intersex. It's the I in LGBTQI. Two out of a hundred children born in the United States today has some form of intersex. The extreme uh, aspect of intersex is that they're both, they're born with both um, sexual organs, male and female, and the parents would have to make a decision on which one their child will be. (laughs) believe it or not, who do you think uh, something like 85% I think uh, the stat was choose to have a male, I wonder why but anyway another old sermon topic right there intersex, that's the extreme part actually 70% of intersex children born do not display at birth any difference in their sexuality They, they look male they're identified as male for example they've got everything a male should have The point when it starts to show is at puberty. When the male hormones kick in, except they don't, the female hormones kick in. This is a biological issue. How do we deal with that? This is not something that we can just explain away and say, oh, it's nurture. Two out of a hundred kids. Sure, today we think there's a lot more than just that two percent. We'll get into that in a moment. But two percent are coming away with thinking there is something in me that's telling me differently. How do we cope with that as Christians? It's not black and white. It's not something that we can just sweep away and just say, here's a rule, follow that. There is one area that that I think we've failed completely, and that is in the area of social inclusion. Social media has devastated the mental health field. Absolutely and completely. It's, It's gone straight to the heart of what it means to be human. We all want to be included. There are very few people I know, I don't think I know any, who don't want to feel like they're liked, accepted, And that's what social inclusion does. It drives us. Interestingly enough, uh, not a book I'd I'd necessarily recommend, but it's got some great points in it. Irreversible Damage, written by Abigail Schreier. She does a great great thesis around this idea that actually, if you set aside um, the biological issues, which she acknowledges, aside for a moment, There's actually a greater number of people going through these changes who most probably shouldn't be. And they're driven generally by social pressure to be accepted. And interestingly enough, guess who it is? Between 2016 and 2017, the number of gender surgeries in the US quadrupled, and females represented 70% of all such surgeries. Again, she goes on, she says, teenage transgenderism is largely a popular craze that can be to the long-term lasting detriment of those girls and young women that it consumes. Many adults and institutions are complicit in this popular movement, which has far-reaching societal developments and consequences as well as harmful personal outcomes. Bella and I were talking about this. My my daughter, Bella, has a form of autism, and she says there's this class action suit happening in Canada at at the moment with these autistic young adults now who are suing their institutions and saying that they were forced into making a sex change because that was what everyone had told them and the pressure of them being in that and what Bella was saying, actually, when it comes to autism, you can't really talk about gender. We have a whole different type of neural... We're in different neural type, biologically. We see things differently. We process things differently. It's not blanket male-female. And I found that quite fascinating. I don't know much about it. I should. I've got a daughter. This is an issue that we just can't sweep away. And the church really is at the bottom of being able to face this. We, as God's people, are not doing very well in being able to reach to society on this ground because we're not seen as understanding. We're not seen as someone that we feel safe to be able to go talk to, talk with. And unfortunately even from a vaccine point of view we hold a very hard line why is it that the majority of those who are against the vaccine happen to be Christian why what is it within us that means is that we have to I don't get it I, I honestly don't I get the fear in some way I do I get, I get the social political issues that surround it I do But I don't understand why we take such hard lines. Did God take a hard line with you? These are difficult issues. There is an issue of inclusion. There is an issue here of people wanting to be part of community, wanting to feel accepted. And their greatest acceptance comes through Jesus Christ. And we are just not preaching the gospel, people. the challenges we face theologically now uh, i've moved on from social and biological because that's about as much as i think we can take there's a whole lot more to it i've touched on autism but there are other areas that actually we need to take into consideration how people feel and think theologically though we are in a bit of a quandary because context is everything Now, when we read the Bible, we open up our Bible, we look at it. The great thing the Reformation did was it opened the Bible to everybody. The worst thing the Reformation did, it was it opened the Bible to everybody. Right? There was a reason why the Catholic Church didn't want the whole world to read the Bible. Well, people cynically would say control. And yes, absolutely. But theologically... It's like me becoming a doctor just because I've been reading Medsafe online or, or whatever. It doesn't make me a doctor. Or a pharmacist, hey? Just because I read a manual doesn't make me a mechanic or a pilot. If we believe the Bible is the same 2,000 years ago as it is today that it speaks the same as it did then as it did today then we've got to understand what it meant to them back then right we can't make this up as we go you know what happens when we make this up as we go We, we come up with all sorts of different theologies let me tell you about one it's called the rapture in 1820 when the Plymouth brethren were formed steeped in their Calvinistic predeterminist ways They got one scripture out of context and developed a whole theology around it called dispensationalism. From dispensationalism out comes rapture so that when the world goes to pot, God's going to take us away. And for 1800 years, the church knew nothing about the rapture, but today we all know about it. That's when you take the Bible completely out of context. 666, a number that we all fear of, that every Christian shivers in there, oh that's the mark of the beast and we forget that in the early church that was a sign of encouragement. That reminded everybody who was God and who was man. And today we've turned it into who knows what. That's what happens when you get the Bible out of whack, right? Right? So let's go back and say, well, what did they mean back then? What did it mean for them? Because let me tell you, when you read Romans, when you read uh, 1 Corinthians, Corinthians, when you read Timothy, and there are these clear mandates about homosexuality, you've got to understand that back then, what they meant by homosexual was very different from what we mean today. There was not this idea ever that man would marry man. In fact, the translations are really interesting they don't actually translate as homosexuality. They call them the soft ones. The Romans called the soft ones slave boys. In Roman times, and the Greeks were actually experts at this, in the Greco-Roman world, if you married a woman, it was generally because of some advancement of your own family name. She was tied to a family, he was tied to a family, they came together together and it kind of made everyone a little better off. The wealthy ones that had slaves would then use the slaves as their sexual release. And believe it or not, men were more interested in having sex with young boys. The Greeks felt that their bodies were nicer. The Romans felt that their bodies were nicer. And so for some of them, they would make them eunuchs. This is awful stuff. You think our society today was bad, you should see. Well, it was back then. They would remain married to their woman and she would produce the kids and all of that kind of stuff while they went out and had their intoxicating drinks and then grabbed their slaves. That's called paraphilia, by the way. When your sexual organs, sexual motivations are out of whack, and speaking directly to that, uh, I'm not going to bring it up, but the Greek words are fascinating. Only used different times in the in that occasion of talking about what homosexuality is. So, if we're talking about that kind, they never envisaged couples romantically getting involved of the same sex. It was just not part of who they were. But today it is. And talking to a guy yesterday, a gay Christian, he says, "Why do you Christians always think that for us gays it's all about sex? It's about companionship." You know, guys, I'm talking to guys now, when you get married, you think it's sex is a big part of that, right? You're in love with a woman, but as the years go by. Well, sex might still be important, but it's not. Monica's been away this weekend. She comes back this afternoon. I don't sleep well when she's not home. I miss her. I don't care about the sex. She keeps complaining, Rob, I'm 55, I'm getting old, I'm not as beautiful and good looking. I don't care one bit. It's companionship. She's a part of who I am. This is actually something I believe God has put within us. And this is the argument this guy was making with me yesterday. And I couldn't fault him for that. Do we deny companionship? I don't know. That's part of what we're trying to do. Another thing I want to challenge you on. Do you think God's intention at the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth and male and female was marriage? When Jesus was confronted by the rabbis and they said to him, Jesus, this woman marries this man, but that man dies, and then she marries her brother, his brother, and then he they dies, and she ends up having seven marriages, and they all die in heaven. Who's, who's she going to be married to? His response was, There is no marriage. Because God's intention was never for there to be that. He didn't make the man and woman so they could marry that was part of the fall and in fact if you want to get all romantical on us marriage was a deal in the Old Testament there was nothing romanticized about it Jacob works seven years to get the wrong wife, discards her and works another seven years for another wife it's just an agreement between him and the father-in-law how much romance is in that Understanding context is actually really, really important theologically. Now, that all said, there is something that crosses all the ages. There's something that never changes from the day we got that, even Jesus was born to today, there's one thing that has never changed. And this is the biggest challenge of today's sermon. It's this. Putting Christ first. In all our debates around Sex, sexuality I 'm not hearing either side putting Christ first. I am not hearing either side, whether you're for or against or affirming or not, I'm not hearing any of it. Uh, this is the second book I, I really want to encourage you if you're really interested in getting deeper into this subject. Um, Preston Sprinkle's the general editor but it's four views on two sides. It's actually really, really well done. Theologically, from a Bible perspective, these four theologians wrestle the point of homosexuality, the Bible and the church, same-sex attraction, and they do a great job of it. Stephen Holmes says this in the book, he says, the acceptance offered to lesbian and gay people is exactly the same as acceptance offered to straight people. We are all invited through the mercy of God and the sacrifice of Christ to come as we are, desiring wrongly in multiple ways and to find ourselves gradually transformed to desire rightly through the work of the Spirit. That's a powerful comment. And to me, it's, it's really clear. We all come to Christ just as we are, with all our brokenness, with all that we've got, biology or not, we come as we are and, and whatever we come for the most part, many of us come the wrong way, and over time we are transformed more into who Christ is. This is the challenge. Uh, Galatians five thirteen to fifteen. Some people use verse thirteen as a as a verse against sexuality or promiscuity. It's got nothing to do with it just because the word flesh is popped up in there they immediately think sex and again that's most probably because Christians have a poor view of sex but it, if you read on it will tell you what the problem is you my brothers and sisters were called to be free but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh rather serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment love your neighbor as yourself if you bite and devour each other watch out or you'll be destroyed by each other that's what's happening with the vaccine today by the way churches are fighting biting and devouring each other over this issue and I bet it's led by the flesh absolutely and we do this with sexuality we stand our ground firm and say no this is the way it is and then the other side does the exact no 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 this is all it's all about love no no it's all about the law and you're biting and devouring each other the gospel falls by the wayside And Christ is never preached. I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. Again, they use this, but they don't read the rest of it. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Get that last point, that verse 24 connects to verse 23. You can't stop at that full stop and then apply it to anything else you want. Because Paul is applying it to us. Philippians Philippians 2:21 Message version thank god for Eugene Peterson and his version most people around here are looking out for themselves with little concern for the things of Jesus and that sums it all up i have held out for years to not preach this sermon and it's annoyed the heck out of me as I sit back and watch us bicker and fight devouring one another over it and Jesus is never preached Jesus, is, his name is used to prove my point rather than being focused on who he is and like the rabbis who were more interested in getting the adulterous condemned It's a great story. There's two sides to it. Jesus sides with her when at the end he says, go sin no more. I think she'd listen to him after that. But I don't think she'd listen to the rabbis. You know, this whole thing about sexuality, it has exploded on us. It has taken the church by storm. but we're called to be more like Christ, even in the storm. And sometimes it's okay for us to be in the storm. I am a big guy. (laughs) My shirt says il capo, which in Italian means the boss. I'm Italian, right? I I show it everywhere I do. I was born in Australia. I was born in Sydney in the 70s and 80s, where I refused to be acknowledged as an Australian, I refused to be known as white. I was a WOG. And I was proud of it. That was my identity. I went to Italy, I was back in the fatherland. Yes. None of this McDonald's crap. I got pizza every day. And none of that pineapple stuff, too. Right? until I met Jesus. I'm not Italian. You know, during that whole purity movement, there was, what was born out of that as well was promise keepers. I was one of those million men marching on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. in 1998. I was with that crowd telling us to be real men. Well, I'm not a man. I'm neither Italian nor a man. I am Christ. He is my identity. Full stop. Full stop. I'm not waving any other flag. The only flag I wave is Jesus. I'm not defined by my morals. I'm not defined by my traditions. I'm not even defined by my sexuality. I am defined by Jesus. And this is not to say against or pro. it's valid for both sides of this discussion, both sides of this argument. And when we both come to this point, then I think we can have a real discussion around it. (laughs) I've had to do this twice. It's an emotionally draining experience. But we've got to acknowledge that this this is an issue that I think we as Christians have kind of lost. We've got to win it back. We've got to engage with people in a positive way. And even if everything in your vibrant body says, it's wrong, look at yourself before God. Don't be like the Pharisees, That's quick to point out the adulterer when Jesus is looking at you saying, what's going on with you? What's happening actually within you? Our church is declining, and I mean the capital C church, because we are unable to engage in a loving way with people who are only seeking acceptance. Uh, Billy Graham once said God the Father's the judge God the Spirit's the convictor he convicts people and the only person I'm called to be is God the Son and he loved us sacrificed his life for us even though we didn't deserve it I'm not called to be the judge I'm not called to convict people I'm called to love people Billy Graham how do we hold that all intention though eh? I don't know, it's not easy but it's worth a discussion let me pray Father God um, I'm going to say thank you but not um, I know that this was a topic I've avoided to, to touch on and was far more happier to speak one on one with but Lord I just pray that your Holy Spirit work in us and through us convict us Lord of how we are your vessels to the world. I think some of us are more happy to win an argument rather than win souls, more happy to, to preach I don't know what rather than preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to be those kind of people, Lord. And if be, let the Holy Spirit do all the convicting. It's not in our power, Lord, it's in yours help us to better engage with people to be better understanding Lord and better accepting we are defined by you Jesus I give it to you in your name, Amen (sighs) I think there is tea coffee tonight Happy birthday. and uh, coffee, if you guys want to go downstairs, please, uh, if you're in the hallways, just keep your masks on. But if you're hopping into the cafe to have coffee, you can take them off and sit down and talk. I'm guessing there's teen coffee. They don't tell me much of what's going on downstairs. Um, and it's also Kathy's last Sunday, even though we do have a farewell for her on the 14th. Give her a big hug. Um, she's done a lot for us. I pray God blesses you this week. Amen. Kind of weird not ending with a song, huh? (laughs)